A Tom Bernard show with Little Noisy Hackmaster, <laughs> Ralph Dave MD. Co host Catherine Brandt. Andy Brandt Bernard. Cassie Schrader. We will be right back. Thanks again to Kristen Bird. I love having Kristen Bird on this show. A couple of great guests coming up this hour, too. Tom Bernard show. Walzer Automotive Group started in Minnesota over 60 years ago. Most people know something about the Walzer way. Upfront, no haggle pricing, work with one person from start to finish, or the free lifetime powertrain warranty on most vehicles sold in Minnesota. What you might not know is they are the only automotive group that is a member of the Keystone Club. They join such great Minnesota companies as General Mills, Target, Cargill, the Twins, Wolves, and Vikings in pledging 5% pre-tax profits to local charities. It's a great example of their core values. Do the right thing, display positive energy, be open-minded, and lead by example. So if you're in the market for a new or used car, check out walzer.com or stop into one of their dealerships. Please don't say, tell them Tommy sent you, because it sounds fake, and I hate it. Walzer Automotive Group, walzer.com. Michael Bryant, Brad Sean Bryant, what's the latest? Well, basically, we're trying to represent people who have been hurt and talk to them before they talk to an adjuster. Uh, one of the key points is to make sure you know what your rights are before you start talking to the insurance company and they start asking you questions or they try to settle your case early and cheap. Well, what's interesting to me is, you know, a lot of people have fear of attorneys. It makes them very uncomfortable. They get nervous about it. What should I do? I've known Michael for years and years now, and I would highly recommend you. So that should be good enough for everybody because I don't endorse people who are dirtbags. Well, I, I appreciate that. Um, but I guess the key is, is people think I'll charge them if I talk to them. Right. So a lot of people call me up. It's like, how much is this going to cost if you call me back? Like, you want me to call you back? How much will that cost? I don't charge people. The only way I get paid is if we recover, um, if we get money from the, the other side. And there's a lot of people I talk to that I never get paid for that are just part of giving them advice to make sure they know what they can do and what their rights are. And your record's terrific as well, we should point out. Well, it works. It's been good. <laughs> it's been good, ladies and gentlemen. It's been good. And how do they contact you? And, uh, e- either through our website, which is minnesotapersonalinjury.com, minnesotapersonalinjury.com, or at 800-770-7008. Michael Bryant, Bradshaw, and Bryant. Oh, I love this song. La, 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 la. La, 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 la. How did this band ever come together? What is this? Is this Parliament? Talk, talking Heads. No, talking, talking Heads. Oh, well, yeah, they're all weird as hell. They are that, weird, but... They're uh, very weird. They used to wear flower pots on their heads. No, that was Devo. That was Devo. Oh, wait, thing. that's right. Talking Heads was the ones that... Life During Wartime. Yeah, yeah. One yeah. of the greatest songs of all time. Heard of a van that's loaded with weapons. <laughs> <laughs> it's all rumor. It's wonderful. They're all driving around, and I believe in L.A., getting ready to go to war. And there's no war. Yeah. <laughs> it's just wonderful. Oh. I like the song Burning Down the House because, like, oh, all, the, all the lyrics, it does, it, you can't tell what he's saying. It just sounds like he's going, <laughs> So that's what I would do. I'd walk around the house doing that, and then and all of a sudden you hear, Burning Down the House. <laughs> so it's, yeah, we have fun with, my kids love 80s music. So yeah. we're always blasting it in the house. So does Melissa. Does she? I wonder what the deal with that is. Well, I cut. It was less angry. Yeah, my, I guess the 90s is kind of when music started going downhill, isn't it? My 11-year-old, he was jamming one day. He had his earbuds in. I'm like, oh, what are you listening to? And I grab his earbud and listen. He was listening to 
Toto's Africa. <laughs> and I'm like, that, yeah, so I'm like, that was very random, Charlie. <laughs> He's like, it's a good song. So <laughs> I like Toto. We got yeah. Professor Bradley Hart. Ooh, Bradley Hart. How are you this morning, Professor? Or it's I'm doing very well. How are you? I guess it's afternoon. I, I misspoke there. Uh, things are going well. We just uh, we was talking about the fact that America needs to calm down and stop taking sides over everything. Um, but we'll move on from that. We're, no, we just very briefly we we're talking about how everything has to be about me now. Me, me, me. How? Do, what's for me? And how do I benefit from this? It's getting really old, Professor. I will tell you that. Don't you think? Well, that's the social media world that we uh, live in, yep. I think, right? No. I mean, what's, what's Facebook and Twitter all about besides me, me, me? You're 100% correct. That's why I hate it, and I don't go on it. <laughs> I'll, be, I'll be honest with you, Professor Hart. I told everybody to F off, and then I never went on it again. <laughs> so there you have it. We still do it for the show, though. That must have made you popular with your friends, yeah. Oh, I'm semi-popular in some areas and not so much in others, but... Uh, but yeah, I was. I think I w- I've tweeted like maybe twice ever. Yeah. I don't even know if I would be able to remember my handle because it's oh. just such a toxic environment. I have a great question for mm-hmm. Professor Hart. Oh yes, Professor. One thing I will say, and then, then Ralph wants to ask you a question, Professor. Can we call you Professor Bradley, Mister Hart, Professor Hart, Doctor Hart? Oh, you can call call me Bradley. We're all friends here. Bradley's good. I like Bradley. Um, let me put it this way. Um. I might uh, be a little harsh on social media, but even Hitler has friends, so what the hell does that tell you? I, <laughs> I think I'll be okay. <laughs> I think I'll work out. But, you know, I cannot wait to talk to you about this because I don't do any uh, show prep ever. I do a morning show and an afternoon show, and I don't do show prep for either because I love to have a real reaction. So after Dr. Basham asks, uh Professor Hart, Bradley as we know him, then uh, we'll we'll get into the book. It'd be wonderful. Yeah, the, uh, sounds great. Yeah, the book uh, Hitler's American Friends, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. In this day, in this uh, day of social media, are we less likely or more likely to have another Hitler? Ooh, more. What do you that think? That's a very good question. Yeah. Well, I think you know. Um, my, my book talks a lot about propaganda. Um, yeah. Certainly, propaganda was a key aspect of German operations in the United States. It was a key aspect of World War Two. Um, and I think social media in a lot of ways has made us more vulnerable to propaganda because of exactly yep. what we were talking about, oh, yeah. the idea that um, it's personalized, that you have some sort of connection, you think, with the person posting it. And in fact, you don't really know if the person posting it is actually a person at all. These right. Days. So there's this aspect. Um, and, and one thing that came across in researching the book um, was just how frightening a lot of the people I talk about would have been with social media. I mean, certainly a Hitler figure, but take some other of the media figures that I talk about, uh, Charles Coghlan probably the most famous uh, or infamous radio host in American history. This guy had an audience of 28 million people in a country that was half the size it is today. So an absolutely huge audience. Um, just imagine this guy with Twitter. Oh, God, can you even imagine that? There, I, um, there's still propaganda that people believe today from the World War II age, and they don't even know it's propaganda. Really? Like Napoleon being short. Well, that was before World War II, obviously. Yeah. But that was British propaganda. He was never, he was not sure. Um, carrots be making you able to see in the dark. That was British propaganda. <laughs> what? It's true. Yeah, they wanted people to think that their pilots could see in the dark. So. Oh, yeah, that's true. They wouldn't that's... fight them in the night. That's Bradley, I have to tell you weird. something. I, the, the only problem I have so far with the, the interview today is I have to get off my butt and get something done because... 
a guy who sounds like he's 18 years old as a professor. <laughs> well, I, I don't know whether that's a compliment or not. But it is a compliment. I'm, <laughs> I am over the age of 18, I promise. <laughs> you sound very, very young. I mean, you sound educated, but you sound very, very young. Um, what, the reason I didn't want to look ahead at your notes that were sent to me is because I've heard of all these people who were Hitler's American friends, supported Adolf Hitler, uh, the Third Reich supporters in the United States. So instead of just going, oh, wasn't it this guy, this guy, and this guy, I want to hear from you. Because and then every time you hit one that I that I've heard before, I'll I'll give it a little ding or something because I've been hearing about this for a long time. All these people, these very very prominent families in America, a lot of them had family members that that loved Hitler. It's bizarre. Yeah, absolutely. I think what comes across in the book is that there was a wide range and wide swath of America that did support Nazism and Hitler in this period. Um, some of the more prominent names certainly would be from the business community. Henry Ford, of course, the inventor of the Model T, also yep. a pretty diehard Nazi sympathizer who actually builds, as I point out in the book, a huge number of trucks for the German military, knowingly, um, and reaps the profits from that. Uh, also receives a medal from Hitler commemorating his sort of contributions to the automotive industry and also the German military. Oh, God. Um, so, you know, Henry, Henry Ford, personally a Nazi sympathizer, General Motors also is a German division, and there are certainly individuals that I name in the book who are expressing sympathetic views towards Nazism. So the business community would be probably the most prominent place that you would find those folks. In terms of mass organizations, the, the most famous is probably the German-American booth which had a membership yeah. somewhere between 100 and 200,000 nationwide. And this is a pretty huge organization for this period. And, and this is a group that, um, you know, they, they give uniforms to their supporters. They have an armed sort of bodyguard division similar to Hitler's SS. And their leader, a guy named Fritz Kuhn, goes around giving stem winders about how great Nazism is and how compatible it is with Americanism. So those are sort of the more hardcore groups. The group, though, that I think is really the most dangerous in the book is America First. This is, of course, a term that's come back into vogue these oh, days. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, of course, the most famous member of that is Charles Lindbergh, the famous aviator who um, you know, flies across the Atlantic in 1927. A few years later, his son is abducted and sadly uh, killed outside his home. And then he goes to Europe. And this is the part of Lindbergh's story that is not really in the history books anymore, but goes off to Europe, visits Nazi Germany, supposedly to provide intelligence to the U.S. military about aircraft production but pretty clearly becomes something of a Germanophile, if he hadn't done already. Mm -hmm. And so eventually ends up accepting a similar medal, actually the same medal that Henry Ford had gotten um, from Hitler, and um, this sparks a huge controversy. So he comes back shortly before the war and becomes a leader in America First, which is the country's leading anti-intervention, arguably isolationist organization. And this thing grows to have 800,000 members, mostly Ooh. in sort of the Midwest, but all across the country. So this is a huge group. I don't know. Bradley, I, I really don't appreciate the fact that you pointed out a Minnesotan as your first Nazi sympathizer. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, yeah, there, there you go. Um, so America First is actually based in Chicago. So right, there is this sort right. of Midwestern story that, that goes right. on here, which is, which is, I think, interesting. And we can dig into that more. I was born about 20 miles from where Lindbergh was born, so it's like... I'm, I guess I'm kind of, and my mother, by the way, was German, but there was never any of that in my family. Never. Never. It was unbelievable. <coughs> Excuse me. Bless you. Yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, certainly when Bless you look you at the German-American community, one important thing to keep in mind is that yep. um, the vast majority of German-Americans do remain loyal to the United States. There's no question yeah, about they that. Did, right. And most of those that get involved with 
these types of organizations, especially the German-American Bund, had been very recent immigrants. So they'd come to this country in the 1920s. So obviously those were folks who had actually experienced the First World War on the other side. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I, I, I do know there were stories told me when I was a little boy that there were German enclaves in the state of Minnesota where during the war they marched through the streets with Nazi flags right here in Minnesota. Unbelievable. That would probably be the German-American boon. That would not That would not be surprising. God, I just, it's kind of bold, I would guess. I don't know. It, it, the whole thing, is it true, uh, this might be a bit off topic, but I've always heard um, that if the United States hadn't gotten involved in World War II, that Hitler and Japan would have won the war. Is that pretty much the truth? It's a difficult question, I mean, because obviously it's, it's counterfactual, so we don't really know. Right, I, I right. don't think that's true because I think the Soviet Union would have probably ended up winning it, but it would have been a much longer and much bloodier affair, without a doubt. God. It's just, I mean, that whole, what is it, the man in the high tower? <laughs> Oh, yeah. man, in man, in high high, man in the yeah. high castle. High yeah. castle. That's all about, you know, everything east of the Rockies is, is German and everything west of the Rockies is Japanese. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I, I've seen a couple of episodes, but I haven't watched a lot. It's a very dark series. Is it true, uh, Bradley, that, that the Kennedy family, Joe Kennedy, I had been told in the past, because first of all, I got I, full disclosure here, my mother adored JFK because we grew up Catholic, and he was the only Catholic president in the United States, so he was a big hero in our house. But yeah, the world word was always out there that Joe Kennedy was was a uh, he admired Hitler himself. Is that true? Yeah, I mean, I'm not so much on that he admired Hitler, but certainly Joe Kennedy is the American ambassador in London uh, mm-hmm. prior to the war and when the war first starts, and he and Roosevelt have a huge falling out because. Joe Kennedy actually wants to come home uh, in the face of, obviously, the, on, the German onslaught. And Roosevelt won't let him do so until after the 1940 election. So there's sort of a personal falling out between these guys, which upsets Kennedy a lot because he, of course, has little kids. And he has JFK, right. and Robert Kennedy, and the rest of the Kennedy kids sitting in London while German bombers are heading towards them. So uh, Roosevelt then brings him back. And when, when Joe Kennedy comes back after the 1940 election, he begins giving speeches around the country, basically saying that Britain's lost the war already. Um, and you can imagine how, how this is how this impacts public opinion when he's the former ambassador to the country and actually the current ambassador too. He's just not there. So Roosevelt ends up firing him, and then Kennedy gets really unleashed and, and begins getting associated with these isolationist groups. So I haven't seen any direct evidence that he's necessarily personally sympathetic to Nazism, but certainly he does not believe that Britain can win the war. He thinks that the war is already lost, and the U.S. should therefore not really get involved with with it at all. Uh, people people that were supportive of uh, Hitler in America, was that driven by the, um, uh, um, when I say the prosperity that the Nazi party had uh, given to Germany, or was it driven by anti-Semitism? That's a great question. I think in some ways that's the core question of the book. I, yeah. I think it's three things. I think it is this this sort of view that Hitler has accomplished something miraculous, and also going along with that, that he is a staunch anti-communist. And we have to remember Uh, that the American people are very, very worried about the threat of communism. So the fact that this guy has indeed seemingly repaired the German economy when the U.S. is still mired in the Great Depression, Germany in 1936 declares that they have full employment. So you can imagine how remarkable this looks compared to a country that still has astonishing levels of unemployment by modern standards. So it's this sort of view of prosperity. It's this view that that Hitler's doing a good thing and also that he's not a communist, and therefore that's desirable. And this, of course, encourages a lot of business people to want to do business with him. 
there's certainly an element of anti-Semitism there, too. I mean, one thing I argue in the book is that anti-Semitism really unifies all of these disparate groups. And yeah. people like Charles Lindbergh even have these sort of deep-seated anti-Semitic um, sort of undertones to what they're doing. So anti-Semitism is certainly very widespread in that period, and that is a key motivator. I think the third factor, though, is a lot of Americans genuinely did want to keep the U.S. out of the war for what we could even see today as, as good reasons. Um, one of the more sort of moving things that I discovered was that a lot of America First rallies, they have appearances by gold star mothers who have lost sons or yeah. husbands in presumably World War One, giving these impassioned speeches about how there should be no more gold star mothers in this country ever again, and certainly not to serve the interests of the British Empire as they see it. So it's a combination of those three things, and certainly the, the third group I mentioned is, is the most sympathetic, which certainly that's how I viewed them after writing this book. I have to tell you, Bradley, when I was a little boy, um, I seven, eight, nine years old, about that age. Uh, where I grew up, there was a Catholic area, a black area, and a Jewish area. And they, we were all on the north side of town, and we were surrounded by a freeway because they used to block Jews, Catholics, and blacks into their own neighborhood. And they couldn't, you know, unless you wanted to walk across a freeway, you really couldn't get out. But one of the things that I remember is going up and down Plymouth Avenue in Minneapolis uh, when I was a real little boy, I would go to the drugstore. And there, uh, it was a drugstore owned by the Desnick brothers, a Jewish family. And I would see people in there with serial numbers on their arms. And I, I asked people, why did, why do they have numbers on their arms? What is that all? It's a, it looks like a tattoo. But I found out at a very, very young age what that was all about. And it, I think I've been traumatized ever since. It's, people walking around with serial numbers tattooed into their arms was very disturbing. Yeah, and that's certainly an important facet of post-war life. I think one of the stranger things that I sort of started thinking about when I finished writing this book is that after the war, all of these groups, are, or all these individuals, I should say, are still very much around, right? So people who've been members of the German-American boon don't just go away. People who've been members of America first, they're, they're still around for decades. There could even be members still alive today, potentially. Yeah. But then the reality of post-war life is that you have people who are Holocaust survivors, like you're describing, potentially living next door to people that right. were involved with these sort of very dangerous groups. And I think you know, one, one thing that's important to remember is that up until the um, federal, until Fair Housing Act of the mid-1960s, you could have restrictive covenants. So you could put, th put clauses into deeds restricting a house from ever being sold to a Jewish person. Right, for right, right. And this was sort of a common tool of segregation that you're describing. But after that comes off, you know, there, there is this weird reality. And one interesting thing was that I, I looked really hard to try to find contemporary or post-war accounts from people who had been members of the German-American Bund or the Silver Legion, another group I talk about in the book. And I just couldn't find any. So it'd be fascinating to hear, um, you know, hear from anyone who has had a relative that they know was involved with that, or, or was yeah. themselves involved with it as a child or something. But this stuff just sort of gets swept under the rug um, because McCarthyism starts looking into people who have been communists, but there's mm -hmm. never really an attempt to figure out what happens to those who had been sort of aligned with with the other side. That really is bizarre that that's true. It's absolutely amazing to me. Um, the book is called Hitler's American Friends, the Third Reich's Supporters in the United States. Professor Bradley W. Hart, H-A-R-T, and the book, sir, is available everywhere. As of today. That's a good it's available that, everywhere. That's a wonderful thing. I'd like to have you back on to talk more about your book if, if you have some time in the near future. Absolutely. Let me know. We'll definitely set up. This has been a great discussion. Wonderful. Thank you very much for your time, and I'll reach out to, uh, to you. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. Yeah, have a great day. You too. We'll be right back. Tom Bernard Show.
It's Tom here to tell you how easy it was for me to hit my goal of a 92.5-pound weight loss at Nutramost Twin Cities in Plymouth with their weight loss plan. I started in March, and in just over five months, I learned about clean eating, and I now know the foods that work for me and the weight gain trigger foods, very important. I'm now in the reset phase and then on to the Nutramost Forever Maintenance Program, which I'll be talking about more in the weeks to come. Find out how to have success losing weight like I did. Attend the Nutramost Twin Cities in Plymouth free informational dinner on Monday, October 15th, 6.30 p.m. at Jake's in Plymouth. Those extra pounds melt away really fast with this easy program. Nutramost Twin Cities in Plymouth will guarantee that you lose 20 pounds or more in just 40 days. Nutramost helped me change my life, and they can help you too. Register for the Nutramost Twin Cities in Plymouth dinner on October 15th. Just call 763-333-7337. That's 763-333-7337. A program that benefits the homeowner and not the realtor? Do you want a guaranteed offer on your home? Hey, it's Tom with my realtor, Chris Lindahl, who has some exciting news to share. Hey, Tom, we are super excited to announce our guaranteed offer program. Here's how it works. If you qualify, we will guarantee you an offer on your house within 48 hours, which means you could be closing in three weeks. No staging, no cleaning, no decluttering, and of course, no open houses. This is your hassle-free way to sell your home. If you qualify for the program, you will get a competitive offer in 48 hours, period. Sounds like a stress-free way to sell your home. It is, Tom. Some homeowners want the convenience to be able to sell their home quickly without going through the stress of showings, open houses, and so many more headaches, especially if they found their dream home and need to sell fast. You do need to qualify for this program, but that's quick and convenient as well. To see if you qualify for the guaranteed offer program from Chris Lindahl Real Estate, go to chrislindahl.com right now or call 763-401-SOLD. Once again, that's chrislindahl.com, Chris with a K. Backed up over the airport, that is true. Thank you again to Professor Bradley Hart and his book uh, about Hitler lovers in America. Well, it's very interesting because if you think about it, like a lot of those big players that, especially in business and stuff like that, like Henry Ford, uh-huh. how much influence did that have on American politics at that time no, as well? A lot. And how it shaped our politics now. And, you know, like you were saying about Joe Kennedy and how that caused a rift between him and Roosevelt. Mm-hmm. Honestly, I think the only reason why uh, Joe Kennedy took the stance that he did was because I think he was planning on running against Roosevelt. Uh, there's no question and about that. Yeah. he knew it. That's why he kept him over in London. And when he failed to, to do that, then he pushed every one of his sons to become president of the United yep. States. He did. There's no doubt about that. Joe Kennedy was an opportunist. Whatever was popular is the way he would roll. Oh, I know. He was a guy who used to call black people the big N constantly, but now, of course, the Kennedy family is known as, oh, they support it. No, they didn't. They they were racist as hell, as a matter of fact. Did you know that Abraham Lincoln never supported uh, black people and white people intermingling? No, he never did. Matter of fact, he wanted to free them to send them all back to Africa. Yes. People don't realize that. Mm-hmm. He's seen as the great emancipator, but he was like, Total black BS. people should well, never be able to become doctors. Well, the thing is, I mean, we have no idea what the world was like back then. I no. mean, we can read what people wrote and all that kind of stuff, but, but we just, really have no idea how, how, I mean, most of America was filled with Northern European people yes. who had never seen a black person. 
And then the slave traders start bringing them over and telling them that they're just, you know, like cattle and that they're full of, uh, you know, problems and, and they don't speak the language. And I'm sure they scared people into saying, yes, they yeah. should be able to enslave them. I'm sure that's how it happened. Otherwise, why would it have even happened? Yeah. I don't know. The whole, during the Civil War, I mean, that's such a, uh, it's so hard to, because there's so many sides to it. It's like, it's all what was their, you know, people wanted to f- free slaves, <laughs> mm-hmm. but what was their agenda behind it? Was it really to free them because they were humans and they should have equal rights? Or was it an economic uh, decision. Yeah. Probably. Well, the North, uh, a big part of why the North wanted to free the slaves was because it would cripple the South's economy. Right. Mm-hmm. And then they could yep. take them over, which is basically what happened. Yeah. So 100% correct. So you're not saying that we're all very altruistic? No. <laughs> or, or we're saying when money's involved, I, yeah. <laughs> or we're, or saying well, the, there al- is that. The, the altruism <laughs> underwhelms us. Yeah. On the other hand, the uh, I read the... Um, like Declaration of Independence or something of South Carolina during that time. So if they had managed to secede from the Union, they had their own little declaration of their own territory. Yep. And in it, they mention that even though they would be part of the Civil War along with the slave-owning states, they would abolish slavery once they became independent. But no one ever talks about that. No, Never heard that before. It's interesting how a lot of like anti-black people became the champions of black causes. A lot of pro-black people became evil racists. And oh yeah, because it was a political, politically smart move to make. The Civil War oh. has been very manipulated. So oh, I was has ho- it ever? I was hoping you were going to finish that sentence with a lot of anti-black people saw the error of their ways Not and decided really. to become no. human beings. Look, you. If we're just going to talk straight up, look, I'm not a Republican, I'm not a Democrat. Who owned all the slaves? Democrats. Mm-hmm. Uh, all these things throughout the years, it was Democrats that kept them from coming into their their shops and their restaurants and all the rest of it. All of a sudden, and who was it that dropped the ball for the Republicans that didn't hold up the relationship between black Americans and, and the Republican Party? And again, I'm not Republican, I'm not thinking well mm. i think where the tide turned was during um after well it was kind of still when kennedy was in office um yeah. you know because they were kind of champions for civil rights but even during the whole problem they had in birmingham and everything because they were pestering uh bobby kennedy to do something because uh right they were having such you know violence and everything going on down there and they tried – actually, the Kennedys wanted to stay out of it. They were more um, pressing with uh, campaigning and all this other stuff that was going on in the country at the time. Um, but after Kennedy was assassinated, that's when Johnson pushed you know, the civil rights movement through. And that's where I think a lot of the um, civil rights leaders started gearing towards the Democratic Party. But uh, what's amazing to me is – Linda Baines Johnson did more damage to black families than any other president oh, in history. I know, because of the Great Society. Yeah, okay. We, you'll only get benefits if the father's out of the house. Mm-hmm. He broke up black families. Well, wasn't that the same benefit problem? Weren't white families subject to the same law? Yeah, yeah, okay. but it, it really affected the black community much more than it did the white well, community. Well, see, because, I mean, the 
premise of the Great Society, you know, the welfare program that was um, enacted then, the premise was right, but how they executed the the law was wrong. What they should have done, because there was a lot of, um, you know, adult black people that weren't educated because they couldn't get that education because they were black. But once... Once they had the opportunity to go to any school they wanted and stuff like that, what they should have done, instead of giving them money and saying, you know, well, you need to be a a one-income household, um, they should have gave them money for college and get them an education so they could be, you know, get good jobs and stuff in the future instead of just handing them money because with the lack of education they have, even two incomes in one home – was equal to one income to a white family. So yeah, that would make sense. So, you know, if they would have given them education instead of just saying, well, the dad has to leave, you only or have to... a small shareholder where they or could grow something. their own food and have or a something. few animals yeah. and sell their products. And, and that, you know, and then you had the Vietnam War, which put our country into poverty. And then during the late 60s and early 70s, that's when you had. The, and the welfare program came where you had uh, the projects. Right. You know, they subsidized housing for them. So they put them all in these neighborhoods, and they were poor and uneducated. And that's kind of the st- system. I can't talk today. Systemic. Yes. Yeah, that's good. Um, problem that they are facing today. Right. And so, nobody's doing a thing about it. It's amazing. It, you know, and, there, and, like. and there is, uh, there are, there are uh, on YouTube, there are videos about Malcolm X being interviewed in his criticism of liberal whites oh, using yeah. blacks oh, for their for yep. their economic and political gain. Yep, yep. that's 100% I mean, correct. I mean, just, I just had a good conversation with my, my stepson, Linus, who's 16, and I was going all, we were t- just talking about all this with mm-hmm. uh, Lyndon Baines Johnson and what was going on in the South during right. the 60s. And, and, you know, some of the stuff he didn't even know. And I'm like, well, they don't teach you this. No. You know, they only teach you one side. And because um, my mom, she was from North Carolina, and she was in high school. She graduated in 67 or 68, so it was right at that, mm. in the South. Yeah. And she said it was pretty brutal. I mean, my grand, we had, my mom had KKK crosses burned in her yard in Maxton, North Carolina. Really? Yeah, because my grandfather was the constable of this town oh, because yeah. it's such a small town. Mm-hmm. And um, they didn't have a lot of, of well... The police force wouldn't uh, help the black communities around there if they needed police. So a lot of times uh, the black families, if they needed uh, law enforcement, they would go to my grandfather and he would help them out, whether it was for a domestic disturbance. Oh, they they didn't like that. No. No. So there was a lot of, you know you know, uh, racial slurs Mm. towards my family. And that's why they moved to Greenville, because it was getting pretty brutal. And my, my, my grandma, my grandfather and my grandmother are Dixie Democrats, mm-hmm. but I think they kind of fall in that line of just everybody's human. You know, they didn't right. fall into that trap of, you know, they should, I don't know what's the word, uh, they didn't. They, I, exactly. I'm, I'm so tired. I didn't get much sleep last night. This prednisone is just kicking my butt. Um, but they didn't. They didn't have that where I'm white, you're black. Let me help you because you're not, you capable. know, capable yeah, of helping yourself. Right, they didn't. Right. They never had that attitude. So I'm um, gonna show you something to Catherine to cheer her up. Yay. Somebody sent. Somebody sent me this. No, I'm just tired. I am tired. Who's that? 
Judy. Judy. Why is you know he... why his pictures in the I up no there? No idea. The most popular dogs by state, Minnesota Cavalier King Charles Spaniels. Mm. Really? Oh, the most popular dog in the state of Minnesota. I that's interesting. And they're huge right I, there. Rec- I saw two at the, where did we go? Minnetonka Orchard. Yeah. But it was dog yeah. days. You could bring your dog. Dog day. Jude afternoon. was a complete maniac. Yeah, he went no. insane. Crazy. Jude was a I lunatic. I should have a believe. cattle prod for him. God, he was horrible. <laughs> um and, oh. yeah, and, I, and there's a few that I see walking around every once in a while, but I see far more of them in Florida. Well, yeah. Some I don't yeah. see that many no. Cavaliers. I, I, Maybe they're out in the suburbs. I would think <laughs> in Minnesota it'd be like a lab or something. They're everywhere. Yeah, labs are everywhere. Black labs, yeah. golden retrievers. Or retrievers, yes. Yeah. All right. Kind of Pennsylvania, dogs. the home state of a certain person in here, most popular dog in Pennsylvania. Do you have any idea? Afghan hound. German Shepherd. <laughs> Rottweiler. Oh, Rottweiler. Even bigger. Big slobbery dog. Even bigger. I nice. don't. I really don't know. These numbers, I, like, I don't know if they're right. We'll go with Dave and Illinois. Mm-hmm. Most popular dog in Illinois is, ladies and gentlemen, Chihuahua. a French bulldog. <laughs> Oh, okay. Oh, I, I knew it was going to be something small because this of all the condo it, no, life. No, no, no. The, the, the number one in the United States at one time, or a couple years ago, were German Shepherds. German Shepherds, absolutely. And then number two were uh, either Labrador Retrievers or uh, one of those sort of things. I think I, what happened, what yeah. happens with breeds is they get super popular there. and then they have bad problems, hip dysplasia or yeah, some dang yeah, thing. True. And then they get very, very expensive to get a good dog that doesn't have all the medical problems. And I, then, so then it goes away for a little while. I think they cycle in and out due to that. My, my favorite dog, and I had one, uh, Lucy. She was she passed away, uh, but she was lived to be 10, um, oh, is a boxer. Good. Yeah, They are fun dogs. They're good family dogs. They're puppies until the day they die. And they're, I don't know. I just love boxers. Somebody used to work for me when I had the tack shop. She had a boxer, and I let everybody bring their animals into work. And mm-hmm. We had this kind of mean uh, shop cat. <laughs> and the boxer would, la, 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 la. He would, like, walk towards and look at the cat and go about 15 feet around him. And just, la, 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 la yeah. again. <laughs> so cute. Yeah, Lucy, she, she would, like, talk. Fred. She would, like, talk. And she sounded like Chewbacca. From no. Star Wars, yeah. so she, yeah. yeah, she would just sit, and then when I'd eat, she would just sit there and stare at me. And they have the, you know, the chops, yep. and she would get bubbles popping, yeah. <laughs> and just she would just sit there just with her dopey looking face and all that. They're so <laughs> cute. My, uh, nice my sister-in-law has a boxer. She's had two boxers, and and oh, my right. son Josh and my son-in-law Trevor have referred to what's in the boxer's mind as this, Cassie. And, uh, oh, just the, the just white noise <laughs> in a boxer's mind. That's what's in a boxer's mind. Here, here's a picture. Here's a picture of the boxer right hey. after that. Yeah, they, I wish my <laughs> mind was like that half the time. Yeah. They are just the, the, their personalities are funny. I think Lucy she constantly thought the word ball in her mind. She's just ball, 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 ball. That's why. That's what I said. See, there yeah. it is. White noise. <laughs> it's just white noise. More white noise. That's phenomenal. I love that. As we. A have Leif Babin. Oh. Oh, Leif Babin's with it? Oh, 
The um, oh, sorry. The voice recognition software thought his name is Life Savin. <laughs> life Savin. So. Life Savin. Life Babin. Life Savin. It all works out in the end. Um, should we just take our break here? We'll yeah. come back uh, because we only have about 45 seconds left here. I'll mention this quickly, and then we'll come back with Leif Babin, our very special guest, in just a couple of seconds. It may not be clear who won Monday's debate between Pennsylvania Governor Tom Wolf and his Republican challenger, Scott Wagner, but one thing seems clear based on Tuesday morning's reaction. Moderator Alex Trebek lost. Yes, the Jeopardy host took on the unusual what? duty, and the reviews have not been kind, with most of them centering on the same complaint, Trebek talked too much. <laughs> Trebek is Canadian. Why would you have him moderate a debate? In America. Oh, he's, he's, not, he's not an American citizen? No, he's Canadian. Oh. And he's not a reporter. I mean, he's not, he's a, not a reporter. He's a game, game show. show host. I mean, how does that work? Uh, yes, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> we will be right back in just a couple of minutes. Our very special guest, Leif Babin, will join us right after this Tom Bernard show. John, I just got another complaint about our delivery service. Oh, not again. Yep, we have to do something about our courier service. You know, they're a reflection of us. What happened now? Well, you know that one driver that has the dog that rides with him? Uh-huh. Well, when he got out of his truck to deliver our package, his dog got out and delivered, well, uh, his own package, if you know what I mean. That's it. I want you to call... Priority Courier Experts, because, you know, they've got more than 500 drivers. And tell them we need... A professional, reliable courier service. And make sure they have internet order entry and real-time tracking you know i had priority courier experts account rep in here about a month ago and who knows how many accounts we could have serviced better if we had just signed up and started using the twin cities largest most reliable on-call courier service what's that number because the next package is going with priority courier experts already dialing 651-748-4477 priority courier experts can we help you can you ever priority courier experts every time you call us we deliver Tom here for Sabre Plumbing, Heating, and Air Conditioning. Right now, Sabre and Bryant are teaming up to offer 0% financing for 36 months when you buy a new Bryant furnace. This is the perfect time to replace your old furnace with a new trouble-free, energy-efficient furnace from Sabre. And when you buy Bryant equipment, you're getting one of the most trusted names in the industry. This 0% offer is available for a limited time. Call Sabre Plumbing, Heating, and Air Conditioning to find out more, and please tell them that Tom sent you. Saber and Bryant, whatever it takes. Little Johnny Cash. Mm -hmm. Matter of fact, I saw a movie that he starred in. He started in, I think, two movies. The first one, it was. They were trying to make him look as much like Elvis Presley as they possibly could. It was very cool, actually. Leif Babin, how are you doing? Leif, is it Mr. Babin? I would assume that's how you pronounce your name. Leif Babin is correct, but uh, if you get that wrong, I've been called much worse. Well, I just I went to I went to grade school with the Babin family, spelled the exact same way, so I assumed that it was uh, pronounced the same uh, as as uh, the family I grew up with. Leif Babin, ladies and gentlemen, the dichotomy of leadership, balancing the challenges of extreme ownership to lead and win. Uh, the New York uh, number one New York Times bestselling authors of Extreme Ownership comes a new and revolutionary approach to help leaders recognize and attain. The leadership balance crucial to victory. You know what would be a great uh, leadership balance for me is if everybody wasn't so self-centered and only do it. Right now, should I call you Leif or Mr. Babin? 
Life is perfectly fine, Tom. All, All good. Right. It works. I had, let me ask you a question very quickly, if you don't mind. Not that you know, I'm, I'm expecting you to be an expert on all this stuff, but in the region where the name Leif was popularized, from country to country, it's it's pronounced completely differently. It's Denmark and where it's Plus Iceland, Denmark. But I mean, it's Leif, it's life, it's leaf, yeah. it's la. What was one of those, Andy? I don't remember. Yeah, it doesn't. Matter. I thought you might have had it up in front of you there. Nope. But in any case, there's that. The, the, the Leif actually comes from the uh, the old Norse pronunciation. My dad was pretty big in our Viking heritage and uh, read me uh, Icelandic sagas when I was a young kid. So, sure. Uh, the old old Norse is uh, is is where Leif comes from, and, and the modern the modern uh, uh, Scandinavian countries, uh, kind of like Germans, say say Leif. They say life. They still speak Old Norsk in Iceland, don't they? I think that's what I was told. Icelandic is actually the closest to uh, to Old Norse. Mm-hmm. That's correct. That's what I said. Where did you Where did you grow up, Leif? I am from deep southeast Texas, what we call the Piney Woods. Oh and, yeah, Piney uh, Woods. Yep. I uh, grew up grew up in that area and uh, born and born and raised there. Spent uh, four years at Annapolis. Uh, the Naval Academy, and then was stationed in San Diego, California, for 12, 12 years. Excellent. The only reason I asked you that is because, because we have a few uh, a few Scandinavians up Minnesota way. I, yep. I'm sure you know that. Just a, just a few. That's just, right. just a few. <laughs> uh, Can't swing a dead cat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go. Um, let's talk about extreme ownership. First, uh, educate some people who don't know what extreme ownership is. Yes, sir. Well, Extreme Ownership is our first book. Jocko Willink is, is the co-author as well. Jocko was my boss uh, and really what we call a sea daddy in the Navy. He was my mentor and the, the guy who taught me to be the combat leader that I needed to be. Uh, he was my task unit commander in SEAL Team 3 back in 2005, 2006, uh, and I was one of two platoon commanders in, in, uh, in that platoon. So a SEAL platoon is about 16 guys, uh, and so a, a, a task unit is made up of two 16-man uh, SEAL platoons and about a five-man headquarters element. So we fought in the Battle of Ramadi in 2006, which was some tough urban combat. We learned a lot of tough lessons learned, uh, and, we, and we learned the power of leadership on the battlefield. And, and by leadership, we're talking about every level uh, of the team. And we came back uh, with those lessons learned and, and passed on uh, the lesson we learned to the next generation of SEALs. And uh, after we got out of the Navy and we started working with companies as business consultants and, and talking to them about leadership, we, we had a, a growing demand signal to, to, to write down the lessons that we learned. And that eventually became this book, Extreme Ownership, which is the, the title reflects this, this foundational principle that there's nobody else to blame. There's no excuses to make. you got to own everything in the world and not just what you're responsible for, but everything that impacts your mission. You know, that makes complete sense to me, and I love the fact that you guys are talking about that. this, you and Jocko. Uh, responsibility has just disappeared from the American landscape. What is that? Why did that happen? Well, I think there's a lot of people out there that, that want to make excuses and want to cast blame and yep. want to point fingers. Yep. And, and I think the reason it happens is because ego. That, that's, it's, it's 100% ego because it's, it's somebody else's fault. It's not your fault. 
Uh, and yet when you look at the most successful people in, in any walk of life, in business, in sports, uh, in, in radio, in, in anything that they're doing, uh, they're, they're people that, uh, that they're not making excuses. They're not casting blame. They're actually figuring right. out a way to solve problems. And one of the things that we talk about with extreme ownership is everybody makes mistakes. We made all kinds mm-hmm. of mistakes. I've made, I've made every mistake there is to make just about uh, as a leader. And that's what our book, Extreme Ownership, is about. It's also what our follow-on book here, Dichotomy of Leadership, is about all those mistakes uh, that 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 we we uh, we made, and hopefully people can learn from that. But I I think that's really what drives that is is ego. It's not my fault. It's somebody else's fault. And the problem mm-hmm. is when you do that, then you never actually solve the problem. So the problems continue, and you keep having the same failures over and over and over again. God, one of my favorite things of all time, um, Penn Gillette was interviewing a guy who did a puppet show for kindergartners and first graders. And this guy would travel around, and his whole thing with the puppets is the puppets would talk to the children and tell the children how each and every one of them is special, each and every one of them is wonderful, you're your own unique individual, and you are special. So Penn Gillette, from Penn & Teller, he interviews the guy and says, how many children have seen your puppet show? And he said, over a half a million at this point, a half a million. And Pendulette, you're going to have to edit this out, Gassy. Okay. Pendulette says to him, you've shown your puppet show to a half a million special children, and all those half a million, not one asshole. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, that's what we're talking about here. Why did it become so necessary to tell every child how special they were? I think it was a huge mistake. You know, look, you're all loved. You're all accepted, but are you special? Not necessarily. I don't know. I'll never understand why we did that. Well, I, I, look, all human beings, I think, are unique, certainly. Sure, and, uh, sure. And, 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 and as a Christian, certainly, I, you know, I believe that God's got a, a plan for each and every one of us. But, but I, I think to your point, you know, when you think that somebody's owed something to you and that, yep. you know, it's, it's, that, that, uh, it's just a bad thing. I mean, it, it's, nobody owes you anything, and you've got to go out there and earn it. And, and you got to make a name for yourself, and you got to work hard. And, and you know, we, Jocko lives by this mantra that really uh, infused uh, itself into tasking a bruiser, enabled us to, to be highly successful in the battlefield. It's something that we live by in our company, Echelon Front, and that is discipline equals freedom. And, and if you want the freedom to excel in anything in life, um, then you've got to have discipline. You've got to have that that, that discipline, focus, and effort to be able to do the hard work uh, to make things happen. And, of course, if, you, if you're going around thinking that somebody owes you something, uh, you know, that you're unique and special, it's all just going to kind of, you know, fall in your lap, uh, you're, you're going to be set up for failure, that's for sure. I don't think there's any question about that. I, I, I really like the approach you're taking to this whole situation. I, I think I've always believed in it that, hey, you know, if, if something went wrong and it was your fault, you need to stand up and go, that was my fault. And we're going to fix this, and I will be leading the pack to fix it. People don't do that anymore. It's and I don't want to you know go too deeply into this, but what we're experiencing right now in America, because nobody knows if Ms. Ford is is accurate. I'm not, I don't think she's lying. She just may not have the, the proper memory. Uh, Ms. Ford is she wrong or is is uh, Judge Kavanaugh wrong? I don't understand people so willing, Leif. And maybe you can help me with this to bury the other side, to destroy entire families just to prove that your opinion is right. What is that? 
we live in a dark time, certainly, and you know it's it's uh, it's pretty it's pretty ugly. It's pretty ugly to watch this stuff. Um, I, I've never seen anything like it in my nope. lifetime. I've been on nope. this earth for you know, only forty two years, but uh, uh, but it, it, it's definitely very unique and and uh, and troubling, very troubling. And I think you know one of the things that we talk about with extreme ownership is, is it's incredibly empowering to just say, hey, I screwed up. Hey, I made a mistake. Yep. And of course, those aren't magic words. You actually have to. You actually have to fix the problem. You actually have to put together a plan and implement a solution to solve that problem. Uh, but that's that's definitely something that, uh, that that it's a game changer. I think once people realize, like, oh, I actually don't have to be perfect. I actually don't have to um, to, to to act like I have it all figured out because nobody does. And you know, the the the, the trouble with extreme ownership. And, and by the way, there are when, when you're saying nobody does that anymore. I can tell you, we work with leaders all the time that absolutely do do that. We've had Good. over a million readers of extreme ownership. And so there are a lot of people out there that this resonates with. Now, if, if we'd have wrote this book decades ago, people would have, you know, my, my grandparents' generation, my parents' generation would have probably said, hey, uh, uh, of course, that's the way it is. That's obvious. You know, why do you need to write this stuff? But mm-hmm. I think yeah. it was something that we, we knew needed to be written for this time. The trouble with extreme ownership, though, is, is you know, and our, 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 our failing there was that while this concept of extreme ownership and, and you need to be extreme in your ownership of problems and, and, and failures and mistakes, most of the time in, in, in just about every other situation, leaders don't – you don't want to be extreme. You want to be balanced. And, and that's why we wrote the second book, The Dichotomy of Leadership, because mm-hmm. you've, you've, it's, it's the most common problems that we see leaders uh, as they're trying to implement the principles that we talk about in the last three years since extreme ownership came out. We, we would see this struggle. You know, leaders are going, they're too far in one direction. They, they'd be, a uh, leader has to be aggressive, and they have to be able to solve problems and make things happen, and yet you can't be too aggressive. You've got to mitigate the risk you can control. You've got to analyze the situation. You, you don't want to just run to your death on the battlefield uh, or, or take too much risk in the business world, and, and that can put you in, in a worse situation. Uh, that, and, of course, on the other side of that is, is not being aggressive enough. So that, that, you know, if you're sitting there and overanalyzing and overanalyzing and overanalyzing and you're not making decisions, well, then, then the, the bad guys are going to maneuver on you on the battlefield and your competition is going to maneuver on you, uh, you know, in the business world, and, uh, and that's going to result in failure as well. So trying to modulate between these multiple forces that are pulling leaders in different directions is why we wrote this follow-on book, Dichotomy of Leadership. Leif, what I'm about to tell you is that obviously no great impact, but... I was kind of stunned by the results. I, I wanted to test people on taking ownership of what they've done, uh, or things that happened because of, of the way the decisions they made or the way they acted. Uh, I do a morning show as well, and on that morning show a couple of years ago, a friend of mine and I played in a golf tournament. And the next day after the golf tournament was over, I went on the air and said, because uh, somebody asked me, how did the golf tournament go? And I said, we lost and it was my fault. And they said, what do you mean? I said, if I had played to my uh, handicap, we would have won the tournament. I didn't, therefore it is my fault that we lost the tournament. I cannot tell you how many negative comments I got about that. What kind of coward are you to do that kind of thing? It's like, no, it's the exact opposite. It was my fault, I'm accepting the blame, and maybe what I could do is try to be better next time. But they didn't see it that way. They saw it as kind of like a, oh, you big baby. Admitting weakness, maybe. Admitting weakness, which I, I looked at it the exact. How do you admit weakness, or how can you see strength in a mistake that you made? It's very difficult for most people, I guess. 
It, it is difficult for most people. As we say, these things are simple but not easy. I mean, the, the things that we wrote about in both extreme ownership and dichotomy of leadership, they're not complex. They're not deep theory learned in a, a classroom, and yet they're extremely difficult to implement. And I think it is hard for most people. Uh, and some people may see that as like, oh, I can't admit that because it's weakness. And yet, if you think about people that you work with, if you think about people that you know and have close association with, when, when they say, hey, that's my fault, um, do you do you and you see them taking ownership of something? Do you do you lose respect for them or do you gain respect for them? Yeah, I do gain respect. I, you gain respect. There's no you doubt gain, about you it. You gain respect for them, absolutely. No and yet, when you see someone who clearly screwed up, who clearly made a mistake, and they're blaming someone else or making an excuse for it, you lose respect for them, absolutely. So, so it's the complete opposite, I think, of, of those folks. And sometimes the loudest voices in the media or on social media or whatever it may be, uh, you know, are calling on the radio show. I, I think. Uh, they're they're not representative of the of the whole. No. Um, and, and I think uh, I think taking ownership is is the only way to solve problems because it's the only way you're ever going to get better. And, and when you look at folks that uh, that are highly successful in anything they do in life, whether it's their golf game or uh, they're in professional sports or they're um, you know at the, at the top of uh, of their industry in the business world, um, in, in the SEAL teams, I mean they they're they're humble people. They're willing to check their egos. Yep. Uh, to, to get better all the time. Because when you can't check your ego, this is something Jocko and I say all the time, that the most important quality in a leader is humility. And the reason is because when, when you're not humble, when you can't check your ego, you, you, you can't listen to anybody else because you got it all figured out. You, you, you can't you learn about new technologies or new ways of doing things, new methods. You can't educate yourself uh, about new, new uh, more efficient ways of, of doing what you're trying to do. You start losing uh, respect for your enemy. You get complacent or, or your, your, your competition. And the, most, uh, the worst part of all is that you can't take that brutally honest assessment of yourself, that hard look in the mirror that says, where am I screwed up? Where am I weak? What can we do better? You know, how can I improve? How's my team? Uh, where can my my team improve? How, where can we improve our strategy to produce the results we need to? Uh, and that is the the key, I think, to being successful in anything that you do. It is a wonderful thing. The book is called The Dichotomy of Leadership: Balancing the Challenges of Extreme Ownership to Lead and Win. Life Babin, B A B I N. Life, you got to come back. We got to talk more about this because it's. Uh, I I couldn't agree with you more. It's a wonderful thing. So thank you for putting the books out. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. I'd love to be back on with you anytime. We'll get it done. Thank you very much, sir. That's going to do it. Talk to you later. Tom Bernard Show.